been such a exciting day and now now we get to hear from the Lord in his word so it's um it is truly truly a great day I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 2 John chapter 2 we'll actually be beginning in verse 12 here in just a minute but um before we get into it I kind of want to help you see as we Get into today's passage. We're going to find Jesus on the move. Um, he has been traveling to some extent, but this is very, very early in his ministry. In fact, um, John is the only one that records this part of his ministry. John's not interested in chronology, telling things in order and kind of helping you track. But if it were not for John, we would have no real concept of how long Jesus' ministry actually was. And so what John is recording here is not recorded in the other Gospels. So it's helpful for us to see um, this portion of it and to know what Jesus was doing very, very early in his ministry. Um, the last thing that we covered was the miracle at the wedding feast in Cana, uh, where Jesus was invited as a guest. His mother was there as well, if you'll recall. Um, the family was about to run out of wine, and Jesus performed a miracle, changed the water into good wine. Uh, and, and what we learned from that was that Jesus is bringing the best. He is bringing the greatest things, and he definitely saves the best for last. And so um, as we look at this, we know that Jesus and his disciples left Cana. They went back to Nazareth. Um, and, and maybe it's possible it's at this time that the, the other Gospels record that Jesus was rejected at Nazareth um, because he even says there's, you know, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And so Jesus moves his main base of operation to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was in the northwest kind of corner of the Sea of Galilee. It was where Peter was from. It was where James and John was from. And so it was an area where Jesus was familiar. He would have had connections in this area. So he was doing a lot of his work there. But there were times that he traveled and times that he moved. And so that's where we're going to be today is that Jesus is in Capernaum and he is about to go on a trip. And this trip will lead him into Jerusalem. So instead of looking at Capernaum, today John in his, in his gospel is going to be focused on Jesus' trip to Jerusalem and what actually happens there. If it were not for John, again, we wouldn't know how many times Jesus went to Jerusalem because in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus goes to Jerusalem and, and all the things happen. He cleanses the temple, which is what we're going to be looking at today, um, the triumphal entry, he has the, the Passover, and then he is crucified and resurrected. And, and we don't see a lot of the other things, and it's kind of curious as to why there's so much resistance to Jesus when he gets to Jerusalem. Well, it appears that he has went there at least three other times during his ministry and John is telling us of that first time that first Passover time so on this interaction um, what we're going to see is that Jesus did not try to fit into the religious or the social norms of the day rather his actions indicated a break from the people or from what the people had come to accept because there are things going on in the temple uh, that not that people liked or that they agreed with, but they had come to accept these things. And so Jesus is showing that just because something has been done or because it has happened a certain way doesn't mean that we have to accept this. And so he pushed back on some of those social barriers that was there. So his concern was for the heart of the people, not just the social acceptance or financial success of what's going on. And so when Jesus looks at the situation that we're going to see in the temple, 
He sees that it, that it stops people from being able to worship. He sees that it is causing conflict within you know, certain groups of, of, of Judaism. And also there are people that are profiting on worship, which should never be the case. Every proceed of worship should be going to the Lord. There should never be any leftovers that mankind gets to grab and, and, and gather up. But that's what was happening in, in, in this situation. So the sermon in a sentence is this. Jesus, as the Lord of the temple and of worship, only accepts genuine commitments made to him. And so we're going to be looking as Jesus comes into the temple, takes full authority of the temple and everything that happens in it. And then we're going to see a little after this scene in the temple, what Jesus looks at, what Jesus sees when people begin to say that they believe in him. And so all of this kind of together is Jesus Lord of the temple. And in this sense, we're not talking about just a physical temple like a wooden or a stone structure, but also that place where God resides which now in New Testament times is in our own hearts. And so we're going to be looking at all that. So I'm going to read you John chapter 2, verse 12 through verse 25. John chapter 2, verse 12 through verse 25. It says, And after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered what was written. This is uh, Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Okay, so we're going to start by looking at Jesus' authority to cleanse. Okay, so again, he he leaves. uh, Cana probably goes to Nazareth for a period of time. And and the way that John writes this, he says, after this, they went to Capernaum. And so Jesus is in Capernaum for some time, not a long time. And it says that the feast of the Passover was at hand. That means that it was near. So they weren't running late. It was just time to go. Um, He mentions that it's the feast Uh, or the time of the Passover of the Jews, because John's writing to a primarily Gentile uh, audience about a people 
who had been nearly destroyed by the Romans about 20 to 25 years before the writing of this book. And so some of their traditions and some of their history uh, might have actually already begun to fade out of people's memory. So we say Passover, we know that means you know a celebration of the Exodus where God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. But you know, in, in the first century, when you weren't really a student of, of, of you know, Jewish history to begin with, and the Jews were just one country that had rebelled against the Romans, and the Romans had wiped them out in 70 AD, and they'd cast them out of their land. Um, th- there were Jews left, but not that many. So people that were reading this might have said, well, what is a Passover? Well, John helps you, the Passover of the Jews. And so he doesn't get into a lot of details about what it is, but it is a holy feast. And For our sake, we do need to know about the Passover, that it was one of three feasts that Jewish males, if possible, were required to celebrate in Jerusalem. So they were required to travel to Jerusalem and celebrate the feast there. And so that's why Jesus and his disciples were were going to Jerusalem. Now John does say he goes up to Jerusalem, which indicates somebody that was Jewish and probably understood the topography of Judea. Because Capernaum is far north of Jerusalem. However, as you travel in Israel, you, you see very quickly that, that the, the, the elevation changes drastically and everything was lower than Jerusalem. So if you were in the south, you went up to Jerusalem. If you were out to the east, you were going up, really, really up to Jerusalem. If you were to the west near the coast, you were going up to Jerusalem. And even if you were in the north, you were coming up to Jerusalem. That was the way that they spoke. That was the way they talked about it. So we see there that, that John still knows what it's like to live in Judea, even though that's probably not where he lived at this particular time. And then pointing out one more time, if it were not for John's gospel, we wouldn't know how many Passovers Jesus celebrated. John records three Passovers, which means that Jesus' ministry was over three years long, or at least three years long. Otherwise, with the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would have thought, well, if if you're looking at Mark, you would have thought that Jesus' ministry was about a few months. Um, If you're looking at Matthew and Luke, you would have thought that it was a year, maybe just a little bit more. Um, But with John, we see that Jesus' public ministry lasted at least three years, possibly even a little bit more. So the primary celebration of the feast of Passover did happen in Jerusalem. So Jesus and his disciples made that journey. When Jesus arrived in the city, his first order of business was to go to the temple. That's where he was going. That's what he wanted to see. And so he goes to the temple just like he would have when he was 12 years old, just like he will when he returns to this earth. Jesus goes to the temple. He found there a scene that immediately provoked him to action. Now, people have misunderstood this as much as any other part of the life of Jesus. Some people think that Jesus flew off in a rage. He was just unguarded, unprotected, and he got mad, and he did what he did out of anger. But that's not what it was, and the disciples even notice it because they point out, using a Bible verse, that it was zeal not anger. And there is a major difference. Anger is kind of an uncontrolled emotion that that will do any number of things, but zeal is going to be working towards that which is held most important. And the holiness of God and, and, and the sanctity of the worship of God is the most important thing to Jesus at this moment. So when he walks into the temple and he sees this, it's a problem. So let's talk architecture for just a moment. The temple itself, the the building, the structure that we know, that we might know the shape and size of, um, if, if if you've studied scripture a lot, that was one part. 
but around the temple were several courts. And these courts were where different people were allowed to be. There was, there was the court of Gentiles, which was the outermost court. There was the court of women, the court of priests, so forth and so on. The nearer you got to the temple itself, the actual structure, the, the fewer people that were actually allowed to be there. The court of the Gentiles was the only place that a non-Jew could be. Now, God had always intended for his house to be a house of prayer for the nations, a house of worship for the nations. That's what he had wanted it to be. Um, and, and it was restricted as you went further. This was even scriptural. As you went further, nearer to the temple, only Jews could go that far. There were actual stones, like tablets, that, that forbid people that were outsiders or foreigners from going any further. One of those stones has actually been recovered, and it's in Istanbul, uh, in a museum of the Orient there in Istanbul. So we know that, that, that people were forbidden from going any further. So if you were a Gentile, like us, and we wanted to go and worship God, the only place on the Temple Mount that we could go and worship God was the court of the Gentiles. That's where this story takes place. And this is one of the issues that Jesus had. Because instead of it being a place of prayer for the Gentiles, it was a marketplace. And that was very upsetting for him. So this scene that he finds, um, we can attribute it to the former high priest, Ananias, who plays a big part in the whole um, ministry of Jesus and especially toward the end his um, crucifixion. Uh, Ananias and his sons were running a racket in the temple uh, to pad their own pockets. So originally there were a few stalls and actually historically the, the selling of animals and things like that were across the Kidron Valley on the Mount of Olives, which is not far. You can, you can clearly see the, the temple from there. It's not a bad walk. Um, so it was set up to help people who were not able to bring their animals to sacrifice and to worship. So let's say, for example, you were coming from Capernaum and you would have a couple of days walk. Well, there were certain requirements for an animal to be worthy of a sacrifice. And if you've ever tried to move animals, you know that over the course of a, a journey, something could happen. And, and, and a, a scratch, a little problem could become something that would disqualify that animal from being worthy as a sacrifice. If you were coming from further, and, and remember that the Jews had been scattered a good bit by this point, if you were coming from further, you might have to, to, to bring an animal hundreds of miles and in that case that animal may become somewhere in it rendered unworthy for a sacrifice and then what are you going to do when you get to the temple you have nothing and so the selling of these animals was originally a service but what had began as a service had become downright criminal as the prices of the animals soared and a special temple currency was created with obscene conversion rates and service fees so what was happening here is as people would get to the, the temple. They were prepared to purchase animals for sacrifice. And again, that was originally a, a service. But the prices of these animals, in, in this day and age, everybody knew what an animal was worth. That, that, was a, that was a thing that you knew. If you were going to play the prices right in the first century and they were to walk a lamb out in front, you would have all known what to bid to win to get on the stage with Bob Barker. I know he's not anymore, but that's always who it's going to be. So you would have known how much an animal was worth. So when you go to the temple to buy a lamb or to buy a dove or to buy an ox or something like that, depending on your sacrifice, you're going to see these prices are inflated like beyond reason. And so that was one thing that was going on. Now, again, it was supposed to be a service, and actually the value of the animals went to the temple. 
the extra, what people called the service fees and whatnot, that went to the person that was selling it. So that way, much of this money actually wound up in, its, in, the, in the pockets of private people. And so that was one of the ways that it was criminal. The other part, the currency. Um, there, there was a particular type of currency that was used in the temple. This was a different time in a different society, although really our world is the same. If you travel from country to country, many countries have their own currency. And so conversion rates, that's, that's a thing that we might be somewhat familiar with. Um, but converting into this temple money, this temple approved money, there was always service fees that went on. So they couldn't say that this, this coin, this temple coin is worth more than, than, than this Roman coin or, or the Syrian coin or whatever. But what they could do is make a fee, a conversion fee on that. Um, something like when you go to an ATM that doesn't belong to your bank and they charge you five dollars to get out 20 well that's kind of part of this but they 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 tack on these fees to where you are losing money in order to worship God so so there were there were ways that you use this temple money one there was a temple tax every year each each male over 20 years old was supposed to pay a temple tax which was half a shekel so it wasn't that exorbitant of a price um, but it had to be in this money so you had to make change into this kind of money so then it cost you more those fees obviously went to the people that were the money changers so in, in, in this sense it's like usury or something along those lines and so what people were doing was getting wealthy off of the worship of God God does not have that. He does not permit that. And so this is one of the reasons that Jesus jumped in. He actually, in, in John's gospel, he actually says, you know, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a house of trade or, or commerce. And that is a problem for Jesus. Jesus doesn't want it to be a thing of commerce. He doesn't want trade. He doesn't want that going on. Because if you were offering a service and you offered it at cost, that would be a service. But if you are offering it at a profit, if you are making a profit, that is when it becomes a problem. And also, let's not forget that this marketplace would have been, um, you would have called it an oriental bazaar at this point. And so if you can imagine, you've probably seen shows or movies that were based in the Orient, and you walk into this marketplace, and there's animals here, and there's you know, little kids running around selling little trinkets all over the place. All of this kind of stuff would have been going on. When Jesus sees this, he does not approve and it becomes a major, major problem. So this court of the Gentiles, it was supposed to be the one place that Gentiles could come and worship, but they weren't, uh, they, they, there was not room for them there um, because of it. The dishonesty that was going on in the court of the Gentiles was so prevalent um, that it was known that thieves would gather in the court of the Gentiles, part of the temple complex of God, to plan their next heist. They felt like they were among their own there with the money changers and the animal sellers and whatnot. So it was the common people of Jerusalem, they hated what they called the bazaars of Ananias, um, but they were powerless to stop them. They could not get rid of these things. So they knew it was there. They, didn't, they, they couldn't get rid of it. Now Jesus, on the other hand, was not powerless and proceeded to cast out these evildoers. And so what he does, he fashions a whip out of cords, right? And people have gotten all upset. Well, he was beating animals. Well, he didn't necessarily have to beat the animals. If he snapped his whip and he scared the animals, they're going to go off running, right? And the people that are trying to make money off these animals, where are they going? They're going after their animals, right? They're going to chase their animals. So, so that takes care of all the animals that were loose. And that's why when he gets to the people that were selling doves and pigeons, they're in cages. He says, you get these things out of here. And, and so by this point, he's got a whip. And let's remember, you know, Jesus was not this little scrawny, skinny, meek guy, 
he was either a carpenter with wood the way that we've kind of imagined, or if you do some language studies, it may be that he was something like a stonemason. Either one of those jobs in the first century would have meant that he would have been a big burly guy. And if he's already been, you know, whipping, you know, around near animals, running people off and throwing tables around, if you're a little pigeon handler and this guy comes to you and says, get these things out of here, you're going to go. Jesus would have said it with authority, and they would have went. And so there goes the pigeon handlers with their cages and birds and all those kinds of things. Jesus turns on these money changers. It says that he scattered their coins and threw their tables around. Now, the way that things would have went, the disciples seeing this, you know how this is. If, if you're used to somebody being one way, and Jesus was pretty relaxed. He was calm. He, he taught. He, he performed a miracle. You might use the term low-key. And all of a sudden, he turns it up to 10, and he is just, you know, it seems like rage, but they see it. They see it for what it really is. They recognize this action as a clear sign that Jesus is the Messiah due to his zeal for the Father's house. Now, this is actually quoted in John from the Psalms that, that, that he just has this burning passion for the house of God, and because of that, they recognize that he was the Messiah. So Jesus stepped into a role of power and authority that no country rabbi could ever have. Um, he couldn't have done what he did if he was just a good teacher, a good moral teacher, or any of the other things that people accuse um, Jesus of. So these grotesque uh, bazaars, people left them up because powerful people were making money. And it's just like now, when powerful people are making money, they are vindictive if you mess with their prophets. And so the people had left them up, but Jesus obviously was not willing to, to leave them up. So this was one of the many compromises the Jews had made concerning their worship of the Lord. Now, another thing that this might point to, because it happened in the court of the Gentiles, was that the Jews really didn't want Gentiles worshiping God anyway. That would have been kind of that elite status. The Jews were not immune to that by any stretch of the imagination. It was kind of a nationalistic thing. We're the Jews, we're the chosen people. Y'all can maybe have a little corner over here right by the dung pile, but that's about it. And so that would have been kind of their attitude maybe to some extent. They were okay with it and Jesus was not. So in our day, there are powerful people who blend our faith with the ideologies of the world. There are people that are mixing what the world says with what the church says or what the Word of God says. They're trying to make a harmony there. It's always happened. It's always been happening. Ever since the beginning of Christianity, people have tried to take what, what the current philosophy is or, or what the, the best new idea is and, and make that fit in with what the Word of God says. That's not the way you do that. You see, when we study the Word of God, we must remove all of our worldly thinking and study it for what it says. And then we can rightly apply it to our lives and look at the world and see how the world lines up through the lens of the Word of God. When we do that, we can see rightly. But if we try to look through the world's lens to the Word of God, it, it distorts everything. And so there are people that are doing this. These people would rather have acceptance with the world rather than favor of the Lord. This is a major, major problem. You see, we can't, we can't be friends with the world and friends with God. We are going to be for God and against the world, or we are going to be for the world and against God. He doesn't allow that middle ground. And so Jesus, when he sees this scene, he doesn't see, oh, well, I'm glad some people are making money. You know, maybe they're making some money off Gentiles. That's not what he sees at all. 
What he sees is that it is a perversion of the worship of the Lord. It is a, t- a situation where people are coming to, to, to love and to worship the Lord and they're being taken advantage of. He just could not have that. So Jesus stands against anyone who would stain worship with the flawed ideas of the world, whether it be profiteering or anything else. He does not stand for that. He has the authority to clean his house at any time he chooses. So I just want to mention to you, there were people that got up that morning. They were paid to do what they did. They they put their clothes on. They went to work. Boring day. You know, sell a a sheep here, change some money there, and all of a sudden, this guy comes in. And everything changes. There are people that got up this morning put on some clothes, Sunday best, or maybe people don't do that anymore, but they went to church, and everything for them was normal. There's going to be a day when Jesus comes back and he sets things right. We don't want to be caught off guard that day. We don't want to be caught on the wrong side of those tables, on the wrong side of those stalls, on the wrong side of those bird cages. We don't want to be caught on that wrong side. So Jesus also has the authority to rebuild. So, while the disciples were happy with the actions of Jesus, the the Jewish leaders who had been profiting off of these markets demanded that Jesus prove his authority. They wanted to know, why are you doing this? How can you do this? What, What right do you have to do this? Every prophet was required to work a sign to prove that he was actually a prophet. So, according to first century Jewish teaching, the priests could change things in the temple, they could make demands, they could make things change. Other than them, it was the prophets who had to show a sign to show that they were a prophet, the Messiah himself, which we'll get into that in a minute, or God. Those those were the only groups that could actually make a change in in the temple. Those were the only people that had authority there. So Jesus was obviously assuming one of these positions. Prophet, Messiah, or God? Yes. But they didn't know that. They didn't recognize that. They didn't recognize that he was that. So they come to him and ask for a son. Now at the time, Jesus was still relatively unknown in Jerusalem, at least as for what he was. Uh, So they weren't giving him the title of prophet. He was going to have to work a son to do that. They didn't know. Maybe they knew or maybe they didn't know about the, the, the wedding in Cana. But what you have to realize is that the way that gossip works now, it worked the same way then. Have you ever heard the gossip of something and then later got the real story and the two things are not the same? Well, that may have been what the, what the religious leaders thought. Well, there was this guy that changed water into wine. Okay, but what did he really do? Like, what was the real story? So maybe they didn't know exactly what was going on at that time. So um, the leaders were really trying to get Jesus maybe to claim that he was the Messiah. Now, You have to understand what the Jews expected in their Messiah. They expected a political military leader in Messiah. And many people had claimed to be Messiah even in that first century around the same time as Jesus. And most of the time they were then turned over to the Romans as an insurrectionist. They were the type of people that were leading revolutions, uh, rebelling against the Romans. Ultimately, there were enough people that rebelled against the Romans that in 70 AD the Romans came and, and destroyed the temple and, and, and really, really punished the Jews. That's what I referred to earlier. So the Romans didn't take too kindly to revolutionaries and people that were trying to change things. They wanted to change things, but they didn't want anybody else to do any kind of change whatsoever. So the, the, the religious leaders were really challenging Jesus to put himself on the Romans' radar. That was essentially what was going on there, and he was not going to give them that. Instead... 
His hour had not yet come, uh, so he gave them a different sign. The sign that he says is, destroy this temple, which the leaders uh, took to mean the entire temple complex. Now, there were two words. The temple complex had one word in the original language, and the temple building itself had a different word. Well, Jesus referred to the building, but actually he was referring to his own body, but the Holy of Holies, whereas they kind of considered the whole complex. Um, so for the benefit of the readers, John would say that he was actually referring to his own body. Uh, and then Jesus says, I will raise it up in three days. So being the uptight, pragmatic, legalistic type of people that these Jewish leaders were, they began to tell Jesus, hey, it's taken 46 years up to this point to work on this temple complex. You think you could do it in three days? Um, so tiny, tiny bit of history. We know that the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. Um, it was rebuilt about a generation later, uh, but it was nothing compared to the original temple. Well, during Herod the Great's reign, he started a renovation project of the temple to get it back to its former glory. The temple itself was finished, but the grounds around it were still being, they were still under construction, and that's how the, the Jewish leaders say that. It's taken us 46 years to get this far. You think you can do it in three days. So they're just that literal and just that pragmatic and, and completely obtuse to spiritual things. Their misunderstanding of Jesus' uh, statement is, 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 is so thorough that they even bring this saying back up at his trial to kind of falsely accuse him of things uh, when he is on trial in his last week. So what we know is that Jesus didn't bother to explain this to them. He didn't try to set them straight. Um, but John does tell us that the disciples would remember this saying after Jesus' resurrection. They would remember it and say, oh, okay, we understand now. So... The leaders asked for a sign from Jesus, and he gave them the greatest sign that God has ever worked to reconcile sinful man to himself, and they did not see it. So if he had held out his hand and, and had a bird's egg, or if he had done some little spell, maybe they would have said, oh, okay, clearly you can do this. But instead, he said, you destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days, referring to his body, the crucifixion, and then the resurrection, which is the gospel. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. So they wanted a sign. He gave them the sign, the sign of all generations, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God, and that he is the path to salvation. He gave them that sign. They didn't see it. They didn't understand it. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the gospel that we must believe to be saved. So Jesus continued to work other signs in Jerusalem. If they wanted to follow up, if they wanted to watch him, John says that he worked signs. That he doesn't actually say what signs he did. But we know that, I mean, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see that Jesus was always performing some miracle or another as he met people in need, as he, as he, as he met people that were displaying faith. He was always doing something. And John says that you couldn't have written it down in, in a library. You couldn't have recorded all the things that Jesus did. So we know that Jesus was working signs. And there were many people, and you've got to read this the right way, that, that, that they intellectually agreed that Jesus must be the Messiah. The Jewish leaders didn't follow up on this, so they didn't see any of the other signs that Jesus worked. But they might have agreed that Jesus was the Messiah. But the way that, that John writes this, he says that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man, means that they didn't genuinely believe. There are people that will say they are Christians. There are people that can probably teach a Bible verse better than I can. There are people that can tell you all the things of the Bible but they're not believers. And that's where we all need to examine our hearts. 
because the reality is Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. The heart of man is wicked above all things. So is it that we agree that Jesus is real? Is it that we agree with the things that the Bible says? Or is it that we believe these things? That they have come into our heart, they have invaded our lives and changed us from the inside out. That's what Jesus was looking for, was that genuine conversion, and he didn't see it in these people that were following him. So Jesus is not telling us to understand everything that he says. He is telling us to believe everything he says and trust him. So did the disciples understand this statement about destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days or I'll raise it up in three days? Not at that moment. But they were his true and genuine disciples. Other people saw the signs, but they didn't believe. And so they weren't his true disciples. So let's wrap this up. Does Jesus have the authority to change things in the world? Does Jesus have the authority to change things in the church? Does Jesus have the authority to change things in your life? Yes, on all three accounts. And more to the point, he will. He will change this world. He will change the church. And he will change your life. No matter what choices you make, no matter what you do with the rest of your days, if you're sitting here right now and saying, I'm just as lost as I can be, God's going to change your life. You may not like the way he changes it, but he will change your life. If you're saying, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, well, let me tell you, that refining fire will burn in you all the days of your life. And even when you reach the end of your life, he's still got things he's going to change. Yes, God will change this world. He will change the church and he will change your life. We are called to submit to his authority and believe his word and trust him while forsaking all others. What we can't do is trust other things. We can't look to other places of authority. We've got to look to Jesus. He walked into the temple. And there's no way that I know to describe to you how serious that was, what he started doing there. The temple was the holy, sacred place. When you're in Judea, when you're in Jerusalem, everything builds up to the temple. Everything. And he walked in there like he owned the place. And you know why? Because he did. He does. And so, whatever is sacred, whatever might be held as holy in this world today, God is Lord and he will change it if it needs changing. We're not asked to understand everything that he's doing to be honest with you, when I watch the news and when I see what's going on in this world, I don't understand much of it. But what I do know is God's in control. I want to submit to him and I want to trust him in everything. And I want to forsake every other power. I want to forsake every other thing that's going on in this world because all of those things, they would also fall under the submission of the Lord Jesus Christ at some point. And so let's go ahead and get there. Let's cut out the middleman. Let's not trust mankind at anything. Let's trust God and place our faith and our hope in him. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time to gather together. I thank you for your word. And that day so many years ago when you walked into the temple and you declared that you are the Lord of the temple, today we recognize you as the Lord of this place. But more importantly, Lord, we recognize you as the Lord of our hearts and our lives. And I pray that we live that way. Day in and day out. We're not seeking our own agenda. We're certainly not living and agreeing with what the world has to say, but we are listening to you. What is your will? What is your plan? What are your commandments for us now? Let us follow those. 
And Lord, if there be someone in, in this place this morning that has not yet submitted to you, I pray that today is a day of salvation. Those leaders wanted a sign, and you gave them one. You gave them the sign of the gospel that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. I pray that we would all walk out of this place believing that and be changed for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.